Happy Sunday and thank you for joining me today. Ever since the coronavirus came to the United States, um, it caused lots of major health concerns. First, it was known as an epidemic. Then on March 11th, uh, the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus to be a pandemic. Therefore, worldwide, ever since that particular moment, and specifically, more, more specifically here in the United States, we began to see lots of coronavirus outbreaks at nursing homes, prisons, and immigration detention facilities. And that is a problem. Now, the Trump administration has talked about, repeatedly has talked about testing in more nursing homes. Uh, but that has not happened, including the staff and the residents. But that has not transpired yet. Um, there was only Vice President Mike Pence walking into a nursing home with supplies, essentially using that as a photo op. But there really is a dire concern here because nursing homes have been dealing with the coronavirus since March, and the situation is only getting worse. Yesterday, Rockingham Noun published an article about this very situation. Here's the lead, quote, The North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services web website on Tuesday further listed two staff members at Madison's Jacobs Creek Nursing and Rehabilitation Center as testing positive for the highly contagious coronavirus. That article continues, quote, But the problem is much more vast. According to more up-to-date data provided by Rockingham County's interim public health director, Susan Young, and along with the 51 new long-term care facility cases, the county this week hospitalized its highest number of patients, 18, since the start of the pandemic. Quote, Young said the, de the dead ranged from 55 to 90 years old and all suffered from underlining health conditions. Sources who declined to share their names for fear of losing employment said roughly 30 patients and staff at the 170-bed facility have tested positive for the coronavirus. End quote. In the great state of Pennsylvania, um, they have more than 133,000 coronavirus cases and 7,463 deaths. We now know, according to Lancaster.com, that 68% of those deaths are from nursing homes and assistant living facilities, which is, as I said, really just really unsettling and also concerning Yesterday, the Dallas Morning News reported, quote, only 12 nursing homes approved to restart family visits, end quote. That reporting is sort of joyful, but also emotional in a sense, because not being able to hold your loved one's hand and say, hey, I'm here, is, is a painful thing. And it's also quite sad. On the other hand, it's joyful because you can now spend time with your loved one and indulge in lengthy conversations. But we can't really do that until the coronavirus outbreaks stop occurring. We can't really do that until people stop testing positive at these nursing home facilities. Yesterday, it was reported that there are 169 coronavirus cases at the Carmichael Nursing Home, which is located in Northern California. And so... This is my point. Because these outbreaks keep happening and the virus is spreading in these facilities more and more, what can we do to improve this situation? How do you control this unmitigated health crisis in nursing homes without federal leadership? With the absence of federal leadership, how do you deal with this problem in a way that's going to be effective? In a way that's going to be sort of, yes, as I said, effective. That's going to work. That's going to improve the situation inside your nursing home and maybe help other nursing homes around the country. 
How do you how do you improve that without federal leadership? Well, your research, and that should provide you examples and solutions. Uh, for those of you who are longtime listeners of the show, you are familiar with the historical analogies that I make on the show to help you comprehend the news better. Therefore, you can do that same thing with the coronavirus. You can do that same thing with nursing homes, except a modern medical practice that actually works, that actually worked. So here's a remarkable story. It takes place in June of this year um, in California. On March 28th, two residents at this facility tested positive for the coronavirus. Over the next month, all 99 residents were tested for the coronavirus, all 99 residents at this facility, including the 136 staff members. After they conducted that critical mass testing, they found that 19 residents were positive for the coronavirus and eight staff members tested positive as well. One resident at that facility actually died, uh, reportedly, from the coronavirus. So in order to prevent this disease from spreading more and infecting more people at this nursing home facility, a hospital based in Los Angeles began daily screening of symptoms among residents and staff at this particular facility. They also tested everyone weekly. And what they found is that the test caught a significant number of people who did not have any symptoms of the virus. Healthline.com writes, quote, 14 of the 19 facility residents who tested positive had no symptoms at the time of their test. Additionally, four of the eight staff members were initially asymptomatic, end quote. It turns out that while a significant number of patients had tested positive for the, for the coronavirus the previous month, the staff was able to limit the spread of the disease after those initial weeks. If you are curious as to how they got that small outbreak under control in that nursing home, they actually provided us the information. Number one, quote, guidelines or mandates should be developed with nursing home leaders who have firsthand expertise of resident, staff, and facility needs. Number two, quote, reopenings guidelines should be flexible, taking, excuse me, taking into consideration regional and facility-specific issues. Number three, hospitals, nursing homes, local first responders, and other related personnel should collaborate on plans as a coordinated approach tends to produce the best outcomes. Number four, quote, cost needs to be considered, and nursing homes need to receive the same financial support as hospitals have with testing and personal protective equipment, end quote. So those are just like some basic rudimentary solutions and sort of like medical practices that actually worked on, on how to getting this under control in your nursing home at your facility. Another thing that we have seen um, under this pandemic is prisons. We have seen coronavirus outbreaks in prisons, and we have seen lots of prisoners starting to test positive for the coronavirus and also sharing their news with the local and national press about what is going on in those prisons. What is going on in, in these particular places? Yesterday, the Detroit Free Press published a jaw-dropping article, quote, Nearly half the population at Michigan prison test positive for the coronavirus, end quote. Now, if you recall back in late May, um, I reported on Michigan announcing that it would test all of its prisoners. It's a bit unclear if they actually pursued that goal. 
Um, but th this new outbreak does cause some concern. We know that you can't socially distance in prisons for various reasons, nor in immigration detention facilities, which I'm going to be talking about later on in the show. Therefore, the, the, the coronavirus becoming prevalent in these facilities is, is inevitable because you cannot socially distance. The, the Detroit Free Press continues, quote, As of Thursday evening, 612 prisoners at Muskegon Correctional Facility and 15 staff members were confirmed to have the virus, end quote. <clears throat> to put this into context, there are 1,296 people in this facility and 47% of the population has tested positive for the coronavirus. The prisoners are saying that they are concerned about other prisoners who may have underlining health conditions, which will only exacerbate the situation in that prison. According to the article, quote, prisoners such as 30-year-old Corey Gross said they fault the department for which they say was an inadequate response to the recent outbreak after Muskegon Correctional Facility went unscathed for months. MDOC spokeswoman, MDOC essentially means Michigan Department of Corrections spokeswoman Holly Kramer said when the new cases emerged, the department planned for facility-wide testing to identify potential asymptomatic carriers and to, quote, take steps to protect the health and well-being of prisoners, especially those most vulnerable. She said healthcare staff are watching the pri for prisoners with, with, with symptoms and providing information on the signs of COVID-19. The virus tore through other prisoners early, or, excuse me, tore through other prisons earlier in the pandemic, but an initial round of mass testing of Muskegon Correctional Facility facilities prisons prisoners in May turned up no cases of the virus. The first case was confirmed on July 27th. And the ensuing outbreak prompted the prison to retest its entire population multiple times this month, end quote. That article then goes to lay out in very unsettling terms how prisoners who tested positive for the coronavirus were just roaming around potentially exposing others to the virus in this prison. This is according to Grom Crawford. Uh, he's 38 years old at this prison. Quote, there was a guy that knew he was positive standing in front of the fan in front of a group of present prisoners, six or seven of us waiting for the shower. He was told he was positive and he was packed up and waiting to move, standing in front of a 30-inch fan with his mask off, end quote. Further in the article, it, it also sort of like presents a solution to the problem. It talks about how prisoners who tested positive for the coronavirus are being sequestered in two housing units and bunk beds are being set up in the gym, as well as programming centers. But there still is no full cleaning being done, which is part of the infuriation at this prison because of the unsanitary and diametrically just disgusting and repulsive unsanitary conditions. I mean, at, at this same prison, one prisoner says that he was moved to another cell. That cell had not been cleaned. He says, quote, I felt like I had no dig dignity. I felt like my rights were being violated, end quote. That article then goes on to say, quote, the rooms were not clean. There was no bleach. He had to sleep in there overnight with that room dirty. 
quote, Sharon Shard of Grand Rapids said her husband, who has tested negative for the coronavirus, didn't immediately get access to bleach to clean his cell at Muskegon Correctional Facility when he was moved to the unit that previously housed prisoners who tested positive. So prisoners who had tested positive for the coronavirus at this prison were put inside this cell and he moved in. He then moved into the cell. He had already tested negative for the coronavirus. Nevertheless, this cell had not been cleaned from, from people who had just tested positive for the coronavirus, essentially setting up sort of some, essentially setting up the, the contagion of the disease, essentially wanting to spread it more. So they, they are dealing with diametrically unsanitary situations in, in this facility. So that that's that's just the dire situation in that facility. And really nothing is being done to control the virus there. In Hawaii, uh, one of their largest prisons is now releasing inmates because of the spread of the coronavirus. Reportedly about 20 prisoners are being admitted to this overcrowded jail. And that has now produced one of the largest coronavirus infection infection clusters in the state. Ted Ski, uh, the former Department of the excuse me, the former State Department of Public Safety director, said in a meeting on Thursday, "quote You're going to run out of space in quarantine real fast." End quote. The deputy director of correction then responded uh, essentially by saying, "We are very well. We are very well aware of that." And that's why we are preparing to empty out a third module so it can be utilized to quarantine new prisoners. Oh, so they're going to bring in more people. Even even right now when they have one of the largest coronavirus clusters in the state and cases keep rising exponentially in that prison and really nothing is being done to help solve the situation. An unmitigated crisis. According to correction, according to corrections officers, some new prisoners were released early from isolation because of the overcrowding in the prison. So if you already have too many prisoners in this one facility, why would you bring more in? I mean, my gosh. I mean, this is really how the coronavirus becomes more prevalent and more people test positive for the virus in prisons if you keep bringing more people in. If you keep packing people in these prisons when you already know that people are testing positive. So the solution is not to bring more people in and get the outbreak under control. As of last week, on Thursday, 239 inmates and 42 staff members have tested positive for the coronavirus. We also know, according to reporting from civilbeat.org, that at least one corrections officer was, has been hospitalized and that they are expecting more positive test results. A former circuit judge describes this situation as, quote, a matter of life or death for our prisoners, end quote. He also adds that this applies to the adult correctional officers as well, and that their families are concerned. There appears to be some, essentially, enragement and people just telling it like it is. Uh, Martha Torney, she is a commission member. Um, she says that her patience has run out, and she says that there is no way to social distance, and it is getting out of control. Quote, 
We know people are getting sick. They cannot separate the inmates unless there is a true assistance from the outside to reduce the number of admissions and to speed up releases. We're going to have 1,000 sick people on our hands. So in other words, if we are not receiving help from the outside, if no one is helping us, and, and, and we're not speeding up releases, we are going to have 1,000 sick people in this prison. And that is not good. Because the coronavirus, that will only exa exacerbate the situation. Especially if they continue to keep adding more prisoners to this facility, even though when people are testing positive at higher rates. Quote, commission members also said they are angry that the corrections system failed to do more to move minor offenders out of jail and into community settings where they could get mental health care, drug treatment, or services to help the homeless. Steps the department was supposed to be taking all along. End quote. According to the United States Supreme Court, inmates cannot be released if they have tested positive for the coronavirus and if they are waiting for their test results. However, once they are released, they must self-isolate for two weeks. Um, now, reportedly, based on the situation in this prison, we do know that the we do know that litigation action is being prepared, not exactly taken yet. A Honolulu attorney named Eric Seitz, um, he, he told the commission that the situation inside this prison is, quote, a major catastrophe, catastrophe, end quote. Apparently, he is getting ready to file his lawsuit in a federal court and ask that a special master be appointed to oversee the situation in this prison. In a letter to the state attorney general, he talked about how he he has received calls from inmates, correction officers, and family members who say they are very concerned that masks are not being rendered by the department or even worn frequently. There are also concerns that employees are calling in sick and taking leave to, to avoid being infected. So that, I mean, this is sort of this unfathomable and inconceivable situation and a diametrically uncontrollable situation at this prison. And people are continuing to test positive. I mean, wow. On the matter of the coronavirus in schools, um, we received this gut-wrenching report um, from Michigan last week. According to state health officials, 14 Southeast Michigan schools report coronavirus outbreaks. Reportedly, the state health department plans to begin publishing regional outbreak, including data about school outbreaks, quote, in the near future, end quote. Of course, we don't know when the in the near future is. Uh, that could be uh, months from now, but we're going to keep an eye on that story for you. Nevertheless, uh, we are waiting election day, about 71 days, I believe, when we all get to go to the polls and hold this president accountable for his actions and his feckless handling of the coronavirus pandemic. More than 160, excuse me, more than 176,000 Americans have died from the coronavirus, and we have more than 5 million coronavirus cases. We are number one in the country, and as every other nation has gotten their epidemic under control, we have proceeded to become one of the worst in the world. 
I mean, it's it's getting ridiculous right now. It's just absolutely gut-wrenching, absolutely unsettling. There were protests, I believe, this week in New, uh, last week in New York um, that essentially people are carrying signs protesting as we have now reached another grim solemn milestone at 176,000 Americans who have died from this disease because of the president's incompetent handling of this pandemic. One of the signs said, quote, Trump lies, people die, end quote. The president has repeatedly given us false hope about the coronavirus, persistently saying that there is a miracle coming and that the coronavirus will just magically disappear, which is false and apocryphal information. You can see how mendacity during times of, of seriousness can be very harmful, can be very deadly. I mean, especially giving people false hope. Well, um, at the DNC this week, Democratic nominee Joe Biden excoriated the president. Here's that clip. The tragedy of where we are today is it didn't have to be this bad. Just look around. It's not this bad in Canada or Europe or Japan or almost anywhere else in the world. And the president keeps telling us the virus is going to disappear. He keeps waiting for a miracle. Well, I have news for him. No miracle is coming. We lead the world in confirmed cases. We lead the world in deaths. Our economy is in tatters with black, Latino, Asian American, Native American communities bearing the brunt of it. And after all this time, the president still does not have a plan. Well, I do. If I'm your president on day one, We'll implement the national strategy I've been laying out since March. We'll develop and deploy rapid tests with results available immediately. We'll make the medical supplies and protective equipment that our country needs. And we'll make them here in America so we will never again be at the mercy of China or other foreign countries in order to protect our own people. Once again, that was Democratic nominee Joe Biden essentially talking about how the president keeps repeating this lie and is persistently doing it. He also makes an excellent point. I mean, the president does not have a plan. We have been we have been watching this failed leadership for weeks, excuse me, for months now. And the lies and using the coronavirus task force as a new reality TV show to get ratings, using it as some sort of like TV reality, excuse me, t TV rally for his supporters. Not really wanting to focus on the coronavirus because it's all a democratic hoax, right? It's going to disappear, guys. I mean, the president does not have a plan. So he distracts us by diverting our attention on things that... On, by diverting our attention to things that he says or deliberately does so that we can concentrate on him and not the real news story, not the story that really deserves national attention, not the story that's really important. He wants us to focus on him, not that thing over there, not that story. But I have repeatedly talked about on this show, I have repeatedly talked about this on the show, and what we have found to be effective is watching what the president does and not what he says. 
Because if you're reporting on every little thing that the president says, then you have fallen into this sort of trap. You've fallen into this game with the president where you report on everything he says, ignore him, and focus on the bigger picture here. What is the president doing? What is the president doing that he does not want us to know about? What is he doing under the radar that we should know about? Or that he's sort of like hiding from us? Well, as I reported last week, the president is deliberately sabotaging the post office to benefit him politically so he can stay in power. And his rhetoric about mail-in voting is exactly a concern because what he's doing here is stoking fear which inevitably causes people to think twice about mail-in voting and either physically show up to the polls or just essentially not vote. Here's what I mean. BuzzFeed News reported uh, on Thursday that two dozen voters in Pennsylvania reconsidered mail-in voting, including many with underlining health conditions. The truth is that mail-in voting is not fraudulent. As the president continues to say, I mean, the president can't even produce any evidence of it in court. On Friday, The Intercept reported that, quote, Trump comes up empty when presses when pressed for evidence of election fraud in court, end quote. I mean, for, for context, you can't claim someone committed a crime and not have any evidence to back up your assertion because that's not how it works. I mean, even Republican Senator Mitt Romney has said that he sees no indication that mail-in voting would increase voter fraud. I mean, even the president's own party, Republicans, think that mail-in voting is not fraudulent because they're apparently silently and discreetly pushing ahead with it. They're silently and discreetly pushing mail-in voting, even with all this rhetoric that, oh, mail-in voting is fraudulent, and if, if we vote by mail, the election will be rigged and I will lose... But the president is doing this to intimidate and distract us from the real story. And that is, he will do anything to stay in power. He has showed us that. He has admitted to sabotaging the post office. He's being very, very blunt about what he's doing here. And he is continuing to ensure that he wins. Because any other result is fake. Any other result means the election was rigged. And the election must have been rigged. This is his strategy, and it is a danger to our democracy. The question is, how do we, as citizens, handle that existential threat? That story is next. In this world where people are staying at home, many of life's moments are being put on hold. At Carvana, we understand that for some, getting a car just can't wait. That's why the new way to buy and sell a car is also the safer way. At Carvana, you can do it all 100% online from home with a touchless delivery and pickup process to keep you safe. And for even greater peace of mind, all Carvana cars come with a seven-day return policy. So if you need to keep moving, it's our goal to keep you safe. Check out Carvana, the safer way to buy a car. During the Democratic National Convention last week, many people warned us about our democracy and how the rule of law is in peril. These are the two people that that really stood out to me. Um, Sally Yates served as the acting attorney general under the Trump administration uh, back in 2017 and was fired 10 days in for refusing to comply with the president's unconstitutional travel ban. Here's what she said at the DNC. Good evening. I'm Sally Yates. 
Speaking at a political convention is something I never expected to be doing. But the future of our democracy is at stake. I'm here in my hometown of Atlanta, where as a young lawyer, I joined our nation's Justice Department. For nearly 30 years, through Democratic and Republican administrations, I worked alongside my DOJ colleagues to advance our nation's promise of equal justice. I served as Deputy Attorney General in the Obama-Biden administration and stayed on as Acting Attorney General for the Trump transition. Then, 10 days in, I was fired for refusing to defend President Trump's shameful and unlawful Muslim travel ban. That was the start of his relentless attacks on our democratic institutions and countless dedicated public servants. Like me, these officials didn't swear an oath to a person or a party. Public servants promised to defend our Constitution, uphold our laws, and work on behalf of the American people. But from the moment President Trump took office, He's used his position to benefit himself rather than our country. He's trampled the rule of law, trying to weaponize our Justice Department to attack his enemies and protect his friends. Rather than standing up to Vladimir Putin, he fawns over a dictator who is still trying to interfere in our elections. He's even trying to sabotage our postal service to keep people from being able to vote. His constant attacks on the FBI, the free press, inspectors general, federal judges, they all have one purpose, to remove any check on his abuse of power. Put simply, he treats our country like it's his family business, this time bankrupting our nation's moral authority at home and abroad. But our country doesn't belong to him. It belongs to all of us. Well, what Sally Yates said there is is just absolutely right. I mean, the president has continued to attack the rule of law and is doing everything he can to stay in power. Her speech was remarkable, is also very historical, um, and it, it was also a warning that our democracy is at stake here because of what this president has done and is currently doing to ensure that he wins this next election to ensure that he wins the selection to get a second term in office as president to avoid the 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 ongoing pending criminal cases against the president of the United States on the president's tax returns and other illegal things that he has done in office former president Barack Obama made those same points um he made he made those same points at at the Democratic National Convention except a little more clear. This is about six minutes long, uh, but it is worth listening to. Listen. But more than anything, what I know about Joe, what I know about Kamala, is that they actually care about every American. And that they care deeply about this democracy. They believe that in a democracy, the right to vote is sacred, and we should be making it easier for people to cast their ballots, not harder. They believe that no one, including the president, is above the law, and that no public official, 
including the president, should use their office to enrich themselves or their supporters. They understand that in this democracy, the commander-in-chief does not use the men and women of our military who are willing to risk everything to protect our nation as political props to deploy against peaceful protesters on our own soil. They understand that political opponents aren't un-American just because they disagree with you. A free press isn't the enemy, but the way we hold officials accountable. That our ability to work together to solve big problems like a pandemic depend on a fidelity to facts and science and logic and not just making stuff up. None of this should be controversial. These shouldn't be Republican principles or Democratic principles. They are American principles. But at this moment, this president and those who enable him have shown they don't believe in these things. Tonight, I'm asking you to believe in Joe and Kamala's ability to lead this country out of these dark times and build it back better. But here's the thing. No single American can fix this country alone. Not even a president. Democracy was never meant to be transactional. You give me your vote, I make everything better. It requires an active and informed citizenry. So I'm also asking you to believe in your own ability to embrace your own responsibility as citizens, to make sure that the basic tenets of our democracy endure. Because that's what's at stake right now. Our democracy. The one constitutional office elected by all of the people is the presidency. So at a minimum, we should expect a president to feel a sense of responsibility for the safety and welfare of all 330 million of us, regardless of what we look like, how we worship, who we love, how much money we have, or who we voted for. I have sat in the Oval Office with both of the men who are running for president. I never expected that my successor would embrace my vision or continue my policies. I did hope, for the sake of our country, that Donald Trump might show some interest in taking the job seriously. That he might come to feel the weight of the office and discover some reverence for the democracy that had been placed in his care. But he never did. For close to four years now, he has shown no interest in putting in the work. No interest in finding common ground. No interest in using the awesome power of his office to help anyone but himself and his friends. No interest in treating the presidency as anything but one more reality show that he can use to get the attention he craves. Donald Trump hasn't grown into the job because he can't. And the consequences of that failure are severe. This president and those in power, those who benefit from keeping things the way they are, they are counting on your cynicism. They know they can't win you over with their policies. 
So they're hoping to make it as hard as possible for you to vote and to convince you that your vote does not matter. That is how they win. That is how they get to keep making decisions that affect your life and the lives of the people you love. That's how the economy will keep getting skewed to the wealthy and well-connected. How our health systems will let more people fall through the cracks. That's how a democracy withers until it's no democracy at all. And we cannot let that happen. Do not let them take away your power. Do not let them take away your democracy. This administration has shown it will tear our democracy down if that's what it takes for them to win. So we have to get busy building it up by pouring all our efforts into these 76 days and by voting like never before for Joe and Kamala and candidates up and down the ticket so that we leave no doubt about what this country that we love stands for today and for all our days to come. Stay safe. God bless. Quote, do not let them take away your power. Do not let them take away your democracy. End quote. I mean, just a stark warning from former President Barack Obama, essentially making the point that this election is pivotal and your vote does matter. Because we, because we live in a nation where all of us are rendered the right to vote when we turn 18. That is our constitutional right to vote. You know, it was sort of astonishing to hear President Obama, former President Barack Obama, talk like that. Former President Barack Obama usually talks in terms like this, hope and change and inspiration. And yes, there are better days ahead. But this was a very stark warning from former President Barack Obama. And it also sort of contrasts to what former First Lady Michelle Obama said this week. So if you take one thing from my words tonight, it is this. If you think things cannot possibly get worse, trust me, they can and they will if we don't make a change in this election. We have got to vote like we did in 2008 and 2012. We've got to show up with the same level of passion and hope for Joe Biden. We've got to vote early, in person if we can. We've got to request our mail-in ballots right now, tonight, and send them back immediately, and follow up to make sure they're received, and then make sure our friends and families do the same. That was former First Lady Michelle Obama there essentially warning us that if you don't think that if you think King, things cannot possibly get worse, they can and they will. I mean, and, and you know, another thing former President Obama also said is that if we don't vote, essentially, not only will Donald Trump get four more years in office as the president of the United States, but our democracy will be annihilated by him. And that is something that is, is intimidating, and it cannot happen. Our nation was founded in 1776 by our founding fathers. Tyranny was the diabolical behavior that they did not want. But this president has nevertheless shown that his actions are tyrannical. 
and there is lots of indication that his actions have been tyrannical. That's why he got impeached. And, you know, it is up to us, the American people, to hold this president accountable in November. Therefore, we must vote because our democracy is at stake. There are 71 days till the presidential election. Make sure to vote early, inform your friends and your family as well. For more information on how to vote and the process, go to vote.org. Please also share that link with your family and friends on that information. Please vote. Your country needs you. Much more ahead. Oh, I wanted to ask you. Uh, Liz and I are going to do some work around the house. Do you know any good contractors? I might. That's great. Can you check their qualifications? Make sure they have great reviews? And research the average price for the job. Oh, and book them on Wednesday. Actually, make it Friday. It went in the water. You can't expect your neighbors to do everything HomeAdvisor can. So for a better way to get home projects done right, just ask HomeAdvisor. Last week on Friday, BorderReport.com broke this unsettling news. Quote, exclusive. Migrants who survived COVID-19 alleged discrimination at New Mexico detention facility. The subheadline reads, quote, men want to be deported, but they say their own country doesn't want them back and the U.S. is obliging, end quote. Now, we have seen something like this before. Last month, we last month we received reports of immigrants essentially begging for deportation because of the coronavirus. I mean, it got so bad in those detention facilities that these that these immigrants were willing to be deported rather than stay and receive a better life here in the United States. According to the detainees in this instance, they said that they've given up on any claims to stay in this country and that they want to be reunited with their families. Apparently, that has not happened. The only logical rationale for, for this situation is that the government is essentially inexplicably holding these immigrants because apparently they filed for deportation months ago. I mean, here's one immigrant, Antonio, quote, I saw people in I saw people brought in two or three weeks ago, and they're gone now. I've been here for six months. When I ask the guards, they say, quote, next week, don't worry, end quote. But they've been telling me that for a month, end quote. BorderReport.com writes, quote, Antonio, who spoke on condition of anonymity, said he tested positive for the coronavirus in May and was cleared after a month in isolation. He said he's heard from other detainees that said their government doesn't want them back, end quote. Now, if you recall back in April when I did when I did that opening introduction on the president essentially doing to governors what he did to Ukraine, essentially asking them for political favors and asking them to essentially endorse his political ideas about the coronavirus when the president was politicizing the coronavirus back then, which was wrong, I mean... If you recall back then, there was another story that I reported on in that opening introduction, and it was Guatemala. I reported that Guatemala stopped accepting flights of deported people from the United States because they kept returning positive, and it exacerbated that country's coronavirus situation. And those, flight, those flights then resumed as of June, uh, reportedly, for more information. Mr. Antonio, in his own words, said, quote, we are being discriminated because we tested positive. We don't want asylum. We don't want anything. We just want to be deported as soon as possible. 
Um, he is a father of two kids and he is afraid of contracting another infectious, excuse me, he's afraid of contracting other infectious diseases at this facility. Migrant advocates say that they are, migrant advocates say that they are not only enduring the harmful effects of this disease, but the trauma of, quote, prolonged incarceration with no hope of staying inside the United States, end quote. The, these immigrants are depressed and they are suffering from mental health issues because they have been in this facility for so long. According to Border Report, these migrant advocates plan to ask congressional delegations to look into the situation at the Otorio County Processing Center. We do know that these are Guatemalans at this facility awaiting deportation and nothing has been done yet. According to Border Report, they said on Friday that they reached out to ICE for comment and was told the agency would be, quote, researching the issue. Another immigrant named Raul um, said he contracted the coronavirus inside this facility and was placed in, in what they call, quote, the hole for a month, end quote. He says, quote, it's a very small room. The psychological damage of being there was worse than the disease. All of us were diagnosed with COVID-19, went through that. One guy from Ecuador almost died. A nurse told the guards to get him out before, because he was so sick, end quote. After he was released from, quote, the hole, he and many others um, were told to sign a document, which was essentially what they later found out to be was either a notice or a consent to delay their deportations another three months. At this point, Paul said, Ra, excuse me, Raul said, quote, I don't know what those papers were. I don't read English and I don't speak much Spanish. I told ICE, I don't, excuse me, I told ICE, I don't want to fight my case. I want to be with my wife and my one-year-old daughter. My mom and my dad need me. They are all worried about me. End quote. One person said that, she suspects this. If, one person said that she suspects if this is going on at the Atorio, if this is going on at this one facility, if this is going on at the Atorio County Processing Center, then it has to be going on at other facilities as well. And she also says that what's being done here is very much so diabolical. Quote, even if you support the detention of immigrants, our own government says it's supposed to be non-punitive. But these places clearly are punitive. They're meant to destroy people and beat them down so much to try to get other people not to come here. It is deterrent. At least that is the intent. End quote. Essentially saying that, yeah, these immigration detention facilities, they are used as retribution sites. Essentially to to make it as hard for these immigrants as possible in these immigration detention facilities, making it seem like the United States is a horrible country and to beat them down so much so that they are not going to want to come here ever again. And they are going to tell other people, don't go to the United States. Much more ahead tonight. Stay with us. Here's one more thing to look out for as we enter a brand new week. Um, the White House is the people's house. It has been the people's house since the White House was built. 
Therefore, the President of the United States essentially saying that, oh, I'll be holding the Republican National Convention on the White House lawn. No, no, the President cannot do that. Well, well excuse me, the President can do that, but other government officials cannot participate with the President doing that. It is unethical. It is unlawful. The White House is a people's house, not a political convention site. The White House is the people's house. It is not it should not be the site of a political campaign for in introducing the Republican National Convention. Uh, but this is the story that we are going to continue to watch. Uh, the Democrats this uh, the Democrats kicked off their convention. It was absolutely amazing. There are lots of moments. I would love to do the highlights of that, but there's lots of that. There's so much to get to on that. There's so much I could talk about about that. Uh, the Democrats did a fantastic job on their Democratic National Convention uh, with both candidates accepting the Democratic National, con excuse me, both candidates accepting the nomination. Kamala Harris now accepting the nomination to become the vice presidential Democratic nominee. Joe Biden thenceforth accepting his nomination to becoming the the Democratic nominee for president. So it was a great week. Uh, There's lots of news that broke. Uh, but thank you for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. We'll be keeping an eye on the Republican National Convention. I will see you Wednesday to offer my partial thoughts on what has been reported on so far. Um, then after Wednesday, I will see you again Saturday. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. Have a great day and God bless.